0: We are in the book of Judges, and today we'll be looking at uh, Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that looks like this. That's on page 200, page 200, Judges chapter 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adne Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adne Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was for, formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai, Ihiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir, and Caleb said, "'He who attacks kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give Aksa, my daughter, for a wife.' And Othniel, the son of Canez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, "'What do you want?' She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father in law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Geza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And Yahweh was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. You can be seated as we pray. Oh, Father, we know we need the the work of your Spirit in our midst be able to understand this passage. We need it, Father, not just to understand it, not just to hear your voice, but to be able to respond in faith, to be changed by it. So collectively, right now, we're asking for your help. I want this passage to be shaping my heart and mind. That is our prayer together we pray that You would work through the ministry of Your Word, Your appointed means for changing us. So, Father, move by Your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. What went wrong? It's never good when you have to ask yourself that question. It could be ten minutes before our company arrives for dinner. Or ten years into a marriage? Or ten days after after your business fails? What went wrong? It's not good if you're asking that question. But that's exactly the question the opening two and a half chapters of Judges are trying to answer for us. What went wrong for Israel? Just, just review with me where Israel was, at least where they've been up to the start of Judges. So remember, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, and Moses comes along and re- through God, through Moses, rescues Israel out of Egypt through those mighty plagues passing through the Red Sea, the, the mighty empire of Egypt is dealt this major blow as their armies drown in the Red Sea. Then Moses leads the people through the wilderness. There's some bad times in there as well, but eventually they come through and this new generation is perched on the eastern plains of the Jordan River, ready to go in and conquer the promised land. Moses is forbidden from entering the land. He dies and another leader, Joshua, rises up and he crosses over the Jordan River and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and the gateway into the promised land is open and Joshua leads the Israel's, Israelites through and town after town, people after people, are, fall before them. That's where we are when the book of Joshua... Ends And the book of Joshua is the one right before the book of Judges. Such high highs, mountaintop for Israel in Joshua. So different in Judges. In Judges, Israel is a floundering nation bouncing from one oppressor to another. They're morally adrift, and they're rising and crashing again like a drug addict on a bender. These are some of Israel's darkest days. What went wrong? And the 20 verses we're looking at today are just the start of the answer. The full answer runs through chapter 3 verse 6, but these 20 verses do begin to answer the question for us. And I want us to get to know these 20 verses in two different ways. The first way I want us to get to know it is I'm just going to make seven observations about these verses. So that's the first thing we're going to do, is seven observations. Then secondly, we're going to get to know these 20 verses by I'm going to introduce you to Lord Bezek. So seven observations Than Lord Bezac. So I'll begin with the seven observations. Now, if you read through this passage in preparation for hearing the sermon, or even as I read it at the outset, maybe two things went through your mind. First, you might have thought this passage seems a bit dry. I mean, it's just a bunch of geographical names and kind of get lost. It's boring. But the seven observations I make I hope will show you that this passage courses with life. The second thing you might have noticed as you read this is that it's about conquest. It seems like a a, a continuation of the good times of Joshua. I mean, it's victory after victory. But I also think these seven observations will show you that below the sunshine that's on the surface, dark storms our gathering. So I want you to pay attention to these seven observations. And I want you to listen. I want you, as you listen to them, to try and get a sense of what went wrong. What went wrong for Israel? Because there's clues in these verses about what went wrong. And I also want you to listen as to what the solution might be. Because there's clues in these verses as to what the solution would be. So what went wrong and what are the solutions? As I go through these seven observations, I want you to be able to see from these 20 verses those two things. So, observation one. Two beginnings, two deaths. Two beginnings, two deaths. I want to compare the beginning of the book of Joshua with the beginning of the book of Judges. So turn with me just the book right before it. The beginning of Joshua, page 178. Listen to how it starts. I should note for all of you, when I'm in the Old Testament, if you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, the Hebrew behind that is Yahweh, the personal name of God. And so uh, I won't get into all the reasons why in some traditions they don't say the personal name, particularly some Jewish traditions, but I think it's good to say it. So when I see L-O-R-D, all caps, I say Yahweh. That's why I do that, in case you're wondering. All right. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Now, what, you, what I want you to see is, after the death of Moses, God appoints Joshua. Now, listen to how Judges starts. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired, of Yahweh. Do you see there's a similarity? Two beginnings, two deaths, but there's also a difference. Yes, the beginning of Joshua, Moses dies. At the beginning of Judges, Joshua dies. But what happens after Moses dies, God already knows who who's he's appointing. It's there. It's clear. God takes the initiative. Immediately, Joshua's in charge. But what happens after Joshua dies? The people inquire, who will be our leader? Something is profoundly different. Moses gives way to Joshua, gives way to who? Who will lead Israel? And that is the haunting question that opens our book. They're inquiring who's going to lead. It's also the haunting question that closes the book of Judges. In those days, there's no king. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. No king, no king. Who will lead us? I also think it's a haunting question that many of us must ask ourselves. Who will lead me? Sometimes the best way to answer a question is with a question. So if the question that the beginning of Judges is answering is what went wrong, the first verse is answering that question with a question. Who will lead? Observation one. Two beginnings, two deaths. Observation two. Who shall go up for us? Observation two, who shall go up for us? Now, if you're paying attention, as I was saying that the opening question is, who will lead us? You notice that actually in verse one, the question isn't formed, who will lead us? If you look at it, it says, who shall go up first for us? Who will go up? It's an interesting way of framing the question. And I think it's very intentional language because it's the same language Moses used when he posed that same question on behalf of Israel of what they should do when there is no longer a leader like him around to lead them. So we see that in Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to make you turn back in your Bibles again. I'll do it. I'll make you turn one other time later as well. But Deuteronomy 30, that's on page 172. In our church we're people of the book we're people who are following god and the way we follow him is by looking to god's word so i i love whether i'm preaching or whether i'm listening to someone preach and they say look here and i hear all the pages rustle because it means you're not looking to the authority of the preacher that you're looking to the authority of god's word that's a beautiful sound rejoice whenever you hear it all right deuteronomy 30 let's get back on track come on james Listen to verse 11. Moses says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, remember, when there's no leader, what are you going to say? It's not in heaven that you say, who will ascend to heaven or who will go up to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, what, what is that all about there? What's going on in Deuteronomy 30? Moses is telling them that instead of looking for someone to go up for them, to get God's Word, to go across the sea and get God's Word, someone who can represent them to God, someone who can bring the blessings to them like Moses did, instead of doing that, they can just look to the Word that Moses has already brought. He's saying you don't need a person to go up for you. The Word is already near you. So, when the author of Judges uses the same language at the outset of Judges, it's intentional. God is exposing hearts. Whether it's Israel or ourselves, we are searching for someone or something. To bring God near to help us. To help us experience His blessing and His closeness. But it's already right here. It's in God's Word. And interestingly, it's God's Word that Israel abandoned at the time of the judges. We hear toward the end of Judges chapter 2, that there arose a generation that did not know Yahweh or the works of Yahweh, the very things they would have known through the writings of Moses. Who will lead Israel may be the main question of the book. But this second observation shows us that ultimately Israel needs God's Word leading them. So observation two was, who shall go up for us? Observation three, more leaders fade. More leaders fade. We already saw in the first observation that Joshua died and wasn't immediately replaced. People had to inquire, and even then they got a tribe, not a person. You see, even amidst this this report of conquests and victories, there's an undercurrent of leaders fading or waning. Moses is gone. Joshua is gone. But there's even more because there's this unique story plucked down, verses 11 to 15, about Caleb and Othniel and Caleb's daughter. Oxel? How do you say that? I don't even know. Oxa? One of you Hebrew scholars can tell me. It's just a report of conquest. You're getting conquest after... Then there's this story plucked down that's kind of unique. What's going on? Why is it there? I think in part, it's because it points us to the fact that Caleb is no longer the mighty, brave warrior and leader he once was. Instead, he's handing the baton. Handing the baton to Othniel, who interestingly is the first judge in the cycle of the judges. So Caleb is giving way to Othniel. And not only that, there's this kind of unique comment in verse 16. Again, report of conquest, conquest, conquest. And it seems like there's this random insertion in verse 16 telling us, oh, the Kenites are still there. I mean, who are these Kenites? Why is it such a big deal to mention them? Well, it points to their lineage that they're connected to Moses' father-in-law. In other words, they're walking reminders of Moses, and that Moses isn't with you. After you break up with somebody, whenever your song comes on, he plays games with you, right? Or when you've lost a loved one and you walk by their favorite restaurant, those raw pains in your heart come bursting out. Now, I don't want to say this is quite at that level, but the Kenites were like that song or that restaurant. They reminded the people that Moses wasn't there, the leaders are fading. Which, of course, begs the question, who will lead? So observation three, more leaders fade. Observation four is that Yahweh brings the victory. Yahweh brings the victory. If you caught anything when I read these verses, this is what you probably noticed, victory after victory. There's a little bit of an order. Verses four to seven, conquering Bezek. Then they conquered Jerusalem, verse 8. Then they conquered the hill country, verses 10 to 15. Then they conquered the Negev, verses 16 to 17. And finally, going all the way to sea, they conquered the lowland in verse 18. If you're looking at a map, they kind of conquer their way down and then across toward the ocean in the lowland. But how did these victories come? Listen to verse 4. Then Judah went up and Yahweh, Gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Or verse 19. And Yahweh was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. Judah wins victory after victory because Yahweh is with him. God is giving Israel victory after victory. The victory after victory that Israel is getting as they enter the promised land is from God. That's the point, right? Yahweh brings the victory. That was observation four. Observation five, really, observation four was just to set up observation five and six. Observation five is two reasons Yahweh brings victory. Two reasons Yahweh brings victory. I told you there was going to be one other time I made you flip. I told you I like the sound. So, Deuteronomy chapter nine. That's on page 153. Moses is giving a concluding sermon to the people of Israel before he dies. He's perched on the Jordan River. They're about to enter the Promised Land. And he's going to tell them You're about to take this land, and listen to what he says, picking up in verse 4, chapter 9, verse 4. He says, do not say in your heart, after Yahweh, your God, has thrust them out before you. That means all the nations that he's going to clear out. After he's done that, don't say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. It's not about anything great you did, Israel. Listen, what is the reason that God is bringing the victory? Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because the wickedness of these nations the Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you. Now these were nations that collectively, not just a few leaders, but collectively had embraced child sacrifice to try and please the gods. So they would try and bring pleasure to gods by burning their children alive. They were known for their sexual exploitation of women in in twisted ways that were degrading. They also were people who, uh, who were into fortune tellers, necromancers using the dark arts. It it was a dark, twisted place. I want you to imagine you walk into somebody's home or you're a fly on the wall in somebody's home. And you see one of the siblings threatening the other. If you don't give me that, I'm going to punch you sibling doesn't give it to him, boom, 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 beats him up bloody. Then later another sibling does something horrible to one of their siblings, exposing them to things they shouldn't see. Another sibling goes up to one of the parents and just cusses them out. Meanwhile, the parents are sitting there smiling, acting like nothing's happening. You're the fly on the wall. They're not doing this because you're there. That's just how they behave. And it goes on and on and on like this. You would know this is not a healthy home. This is not a good situation. A good parent deals with that kind of wrong. God is not an unjust parent. He deals with sin. Now, if we ever feel that He deals too harshly with sin, it's only because we fail to see how heinous our rebellion against God is. So we see that God brings victory in part because He's punishing sinful nations. In fact, if you remember, that's exactly what Adonibizek says in verse 7. As I have done, so God has repaid me. He seems to think it's fine what God's doing. But Deuteronomy didn't just stop there. I cut off a little bit early. It also says, there's another reason at the end of verse 5, and that he may confirm the word that Yahweh spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, God made promises to them after... The world was thrown into a mess because of Adam's rebellion and sin and death were unleashed and everything was cruddy and bad and people are killing each other and all sorts of horrible things are happening. God comes along to Abraham and makes a promise to him and he says, look, I'm going to bring you to a new land. I'm going to make you into a people. But it's through that people that all the nations are going to experience a blessing. There is salvation coming through this people That is going to reverse the curse and bring blessing. Even to Eve he had said that through one of your seed, one of your offspring, Satan is going to be crushed. Serpent is going to be crushed. So all these promises that are being made that are being fulfilled in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all these promises are coming about and God says I'm doing this to bring about the rescue plan. I am doing this not because you're such a special nation, you're so righteous, you're so good. It's because of my heartbeat that came through and my promise to Abraham to bring a blessing blessing to all peoples through you. God's salvation promise is at stake. Now the land plays prominent in that promise, but as you're listening to it, you might think, okay, why is it so important that they get in there and get the land? I remember uh, when I learned a hard lesson. As a young man, elementary school aged, I loved baseball cards. Back then, they didn't have email, so I got a letter in the mail from one of my acquaintances from Minnesota. That's the state I'd lived in prior. And it said Here's the deal you send one of your favorite packs of baseball cards to these 10 kids. And then you send this letter to, I don't remember how many, friends. And you'll end up with even more cards. Because the people will keep coming down the line, you'll get all these baseball cards. This is brilliant. I give 10 packs. I get 100 packs or whatever it was. And my parents sat me down and said, James, this is a scheme. It doesn't work. Like, no, no, no. It's, it makes total sense. Look here. Okay, you can do that if you want to do that. But just know it doesn't work. Go spend my money, buy my 10 packs, mail them out. And what am I waiting? I'm waiting for just one pack to come back. It's kind of a fulfillment. The, The promise of the letter is being fulfilled. Just one pack. Nope. 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 Of course not. That's kind of Israel, right? Like, Show me that God's going to fulfill the promise. But unlike with the chain letter. God keeps his promises. And so, oh, we're bringing conquest, conquest. The cards are coming. God's promise is being fulfilled. That's why the land's such a big deal. He's wiping out wickedness, and he's bringing about a salvation plan. That's why there's a lot at stake with Israel in the promised land. So God brings the victory to punish evil nations as part and as part of his promise to Abraham that he brings salvation to the whole world. Two reasons. Two reasons why Yahweh brings victory. That was observation five. Observation six is that Yahweh brings the victory through Judah. Yahweh brings the victory through Judah. Now, that's another obvious one. When Israel asks who should go up for us, God tabs Judah... And verses 1 to 20 focus on Judah, who is largely successful in his conquests. The rest of chapter 1 focuses on the other nations who are not nearly as successful. So Judah is given prominence. Why is Judah given prominence? Why this emphasis on Judah? Well, we know from back in Genesis 49 that the ruler's staff, would not depart from Judah. He was to be the tribe of, quote, the scepter. There's something royal going on here in a book that's focused on kings and a need for a king. We who come after the time of Judges know also that King David would come from the line of Judah, and therefore all true kings of Israel would come from the line of Judah. And most importantly, Jesus traces his lineage through Judah. Who will lead us? Joshua, Caleb, Moses are leaving or fading. We need a king. Who is tabbed to lead the tribe of Judah? It is significant. Yahweh brings his victory through Judah, observation six. Observation seven is iron chariots, iron chariots. Now, this is actually, I think, one of the most important observations. Verse 19 ends with a teeny tiny failure on the part of Judah. Look at it there. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. I like how it's worded. It's worded so sympathetically. Like you read it and you're like, God's bringing all this victory and there's just one. They tried and they couldn't. You feel kind of bad for them, but they did a good job. Good job for trying. A for effort. They couldn't because they had iron chariots. Now that might not seem like a lot today, but iron chariots were a pretty big advantage. It might be something like an army with no tanks trying to take on an army that has tanks. But God commanded Moses and Joshua to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. He said they're to conquer completely. They're not to leave any of these pagan outposts amongst them. That's what God said. He didn't say, go as far as you can, and then if you can't, just give up and put up your hands. No, you've got to give yourself to this. But if ever there was a good excuse not to obey God's commands, iron chariots was it. I mean... Judah's done a great job. They've mostly obeyed. And here in this one exception, they have a really good reason. It's iron chariots for not obeying. Of course, there are lots of times when there are good excuses for only partially obeying God's commands. You're tired, or you want to do research or whatever. God doesn't want me to lust. So I'll scroll, but I won't click. Or maybe, I mean, you don't want to be totally the oddball at work. Now, God wants you to be honest, so thankfully you cut fewer corners than pretty much everyone else at work. But there's a problem. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. No matter what the excuse Now, in the case of the iron chariots, it was a bad excuse. We know that because in Joshua 17, Joshua tells Israel that they're going to face iron chariots and that because God is with them, they will be able to drive them out. And then, just a few chapters later, in Judges, Judges 4, iron chariots are defeated by God. So what appears like a logical obstacle is no obstacle to God. Judah didn't get that so they cleaned out the refrigerator and got almost all the mold out of the fridge but they left just enough so when they came back a month later that same mold had filled the fridge again in a passage that focuses on God fulfilling his promise it's a sunshine passage at least on face value this verse is the most obvious sign that dark clouds are gathering things may not be as rosy as they appear so those are my seven observations and i ask you to listen for clues about what the problem is what went wrong and we know that's a connection between these issues the partial obedience is an issue and something related to a lack of a leader Hopefully you picked up on those. I also said listen to these, because these verses tell us, hint to us what the solution is. And we know then that the solution is a leader. A king from the line of Judah. A king who doesn't abolish the law and establish himself, but a king who upholds and maybe even fulfills the law. Who is able to bring God's law and write it on our heart. See, these seven observations help us to see what's really going on in these 20 verses. And so does Lord Bezik. Now, who's Lord Bezik? Well, he's a Sith Lord who rules the planet Mandalore, the first pupil of Yoda. I'm just kidding. He's the guy in the story in verses 4 to 7. The guy called Adni Bezik. Adni just means Lord. So I'm translating it Lord Bezik. And he's clearly a powerful Lord because he says he's conquered some 70 kings. Now this is an interesting story. Right at the outset of Judges, the first story we're given is the story of them conquering this Lord Bezik who gets his thumbs and big toes cut off kind of gets your attention. So just make sure we get this. The book of Judges, which tells us over and over, we need a king. In those days, there's no king, the book ends. In those days, there's no king. Everyone did what he saw fit. It's telling us we need a king. And a book that's telling us we need a king over and over, it begins with the story of Lord Bezik, the king conqueror. And this story doesn't exactly paint a flattering picture of kingship. Lord Bezic has 70 thumbless, big toeless kings running around under his table collecting scraps like dogs. And you're saying we need a king? And then Lord Bezic has the same fate fall upon himself. I mean, is that what we're after? for a book pointing us to our need for a king, this is the opening story. It's not the opening story we'd expect. But the story is placed here for strategic reasons. It wants us to start with the bad taste of human kings in our mouths to remind us that the king we're after isn't like the kings of this world. We're not after kings who grasp for power, trying in vain to hold on what they simply cannot keep. We're not after kings who kill their enemies to stay in power. We're not after leaders who say whatever's necessary to win our votes, who spin their wheels for a few years and then get ousted by the next bloke with a better smile and a smoother speech. No, that's not what judges would have us pursue. We need a king, but not a king like the world does kings. We need a different kind of king. But that's not all Lord Bezik teaches us. Because Lord Bezik isn't supposed to be alive. If you come into Judges on the heels of Joshua, you know the pattern. There are these evil nations that need to be wiped out because they're evil. And they need to be wiped out entirely, especially their leaders. So we expect that when Bezek is taken, everyone in Bezek dies, including Lord Bezek but the opening story doesn't fit that mold. Two, four, six, eight. You're expecting the next number to be ten, not 3.1415926, right? It's jarring. That doesn't fit. Even alarming. Why isn't this evil king dead? I mean, even Lord Bezek admits, even brags that he's a bad dude. He should be dead. But what happens to him instead? Israel cuts off his thumbs and his big toes. I mean, that's weird. Maybe even a little creepy. Oh, it's so he couldn't hold a sword and fight in battle. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, it's stories like this that make judges just a bit unsettling for us. Why is Israel doing this? Seriously. We know it's not right because it doesn't fit the pattern. It's not what God said to do. But what exactly is going on? Well, fortunately, since Lord Bezek is alive, he can speak. And he tells us the answer of what's going on. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. In other words, this is what Canaanites do. This is how the pagans treat their captives. And so Lord Bezek tells us Israel is acting like the pagans. Instead of doing things God's way, they're doing things the world's way. In the very first story in the book of Judges, Israel is already imitating the world instead of following God. And look who they're imitating. This laughable human king who's clawing and clinging to power in such empty ways. So let me try and take the seven observations I made, and the Lord Bezik story, and put them all together. What went wrong? What went wrong? How did Israel go from the victories of Moses and Joshua to the dark days of the judges? How did they go from a mighty, unstoppable conqueror to a faltering, repeatedly conquered people? As the opening of Judges unfold, on the surface, it feels like it's still the time of Joshua. It's Israel's still on the proverbial mountaintop, it feels like. Things are still going well. But underneath the surface level sunshine, storms are brewing, and two issues are paramount. First, there is no leader. Second, Israel is only partially obedient to God's commands, and the pagan influence as a result is rising within them. And yet, if we keep digging into these 20 verses, we also hear hints of the way out. Israel needs a leader. But not a leader like other nations have. A leader who focuses on God's word. And it's sounding like that leader will arise out of Judah. There's a lot going on in these 20 verses. What went wrong? I think many of us ask that same question as we look at our world today. If we're honest with ourselves, we should also be asking it as we look at our own hearts. Something's amiss, it's a dark world. And our hearts are dark too. Sometimes it's sunshine on the outside. Storm clouds gathering on the inside. And the issue today is the same as it is in Judges. Perhaps in subtle ways or perhaps in explicit ways, we are drifting from God. The pagan influences creep in. Our partial obedience betrays the fact that we don't actually trust God like we say we do. That's what's wrong. So the solution is just stop being so bad. Nope. The solution is the same for us as it was for them. We need a king. We need someone who can step in, unite us, and lead us in healthy ways. We need a king who can establish a whole and healthy kingdom marked by justice and righteousness and love. But this king can't be like the kings of this world. We need someone who's wholly different, someone who rises above their petty ways entirely. Someone who can deal with our hearts, who can bring God's ways and actually write them on our souls. Oh, for such a king. And could it be that such a king has come? Could it be that the promised king from the tribe of Judah has come? Praise God, he has. King Jesus, who went straight into the teeth of sin and death and the devil and conquered them so that he could rise up and not only reign eternally, but even now reign in our hearts. There is a reason we gather, church, each Sunday morning on the day of the King's resurrection. There's a reason that our songs are primarily focused on the praise of this King, Because this is the only one. He is the only one with power to make right what has gone wrong. In our hearts now. Slowly, gradually, but yes, in our hearts. And eventually, in the whole world when He comes again. Let's pray. Father, may our hearts well up with genuine praise for this King. And if there are any in this room, Father, who don't know the sweetness of having Jesus as their King, who are still in the throes like Israel was at that time of their own rebellion and their own darkness, I pray that they would know the goodness of Jesus. And I pray that our hearts would well up with true and genuine praise to You for the rescue that Jesus has brought. Amen.